Today's summit is a special one. It's designed based purely on feedback from our Future Leaders Program participants and aims to provide a spotlight on the key themes that you told us mattered most, particularly after a big year. The Future Leaders Committee regularly engages with our alumni and I encourage you to contribute your ideas to make our future events and engagement programs the best they can be for you. I'd now like to hand over to the lead facilitator for our first masterclass today. I'm delighted to introduce Future Leaders Program alumni member Lizzie Nichols from Deloitte, who will take you through today's session on resilience, well-being and burnout. Thanks so much, Holly, and thanks Catherine as well for the great speech. I'd also like to thank IPA ACT for giving Deloitte this great opportunity to hold the masterclass today. So my name is Lizzie Nichols. I'm a senior manager in Deloitte Canberra, and I've been there for about six years now working um, from grad all the way through to senior manager. Before I get on to me, though, I would like to take the opportunity to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which I'm speaking today, the Ngunnawal people. <coughs> Excuse me. The Ngunnawal people. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander colleagues joining us today. So resilience, well-being and burnout as a future leader are really, really topical. I think that everybody on the call here today has probably had some engagement with this conversation throughout their entire career. And it's something that continues to change. COVID in particular has been something that's really affected that as well. So what we're going to do, today's session is going to be quite casual. Um, we're going to have some great speakers talk about the, their experiences and their research. I'd really like to open up the chat from the beginning. Don't wait to the end to ask your questions. We're going to run it as uh, a Q&A live as we go, make it a conversation, because really managing wellbeing and burnout is all about managing, um, having a conversation and keeping the conversation going. So since I've joined Deloitte, I've been on a number of engagements that have been challenging in a bunch of different ways and life has its own lumps that you have to deal with as well. Um, I'm going to take a bit of time to um, ask all of our facilitators lots of good questions about how they've figured out how to manage that well-being over time and what lessons they've learned along the way so that we can all take away a few Easter eggs with us. Um, the first leader I'd like to introduce to everybody is Paula Allen, a global leader, research and total well-being at LifeWork. LifeWork and Deloitte Canada recently collaborated to develop a report, Wellbeing and Resilience in Senior Leaders, a risk to post-pandemic recovery. Paula's gonna share some key insights and findings from the report. Welcome, Paula. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for having this uh, on the agenda. Very, very important, uh, important topic. Um, the collaboration that my organization had uh, with, uh, with uh, Deloitte actually just came forward fairly organically. I'm with an organization called LifeWorks and we support the well-being of, of organizations and their people. And we do a, a, a monthly report called the Mental Health Index. And that report looks at the mental health of the working population. And with no surprise to you, uh, we saw a massive decline in mental health at the beginning of the pandemic. We have benchmark data from 2017 to 2019, started publishing monthly in April of 2020, and massive decline in all areas of mental health. And we, we looked at it a little bit further and we were anecdotally getting some information that 
uh, our managers were doing not too well. You know, they had the responsibility that everybody has in terms of just adjusting to all the change and uncertainty and living with uh, a lack of predictability and risk. Uh, but they also had that responsibility of making sure that their people were, were okay and the business was okay. And, and that's str stressful. You know, that is a lot of additional responsibility. So we looked at the mental health of managers specifically, and that we found that from the beginning of the pandemic, their mental health was actually more compromised. And this is a very significant thing because it is different than it was before this disruption in our lives. So for many reasons, being a little over older resources, you know, problem solving experiences, managers tended to have a little bit better resilience, a little bit better mental health on average, uh, but it's different now and that has continued. So speaking to uh, my, uh, my counterparts in Deloitte, uh, we also are realizing that there really is a missing piece of the data set and that's senior leaders. So that was how we came to make a decision to look specifically at senior leaders, one or two levels below the, the CEO of significant organizations across the globe to see what was going on. And we were astounded. There was a massive amount of strain on this group. We found that 60% were finding an inability to relax, 50% having difficulty sleeping. We found many of the measures of mental health actually being more compromised than managers or, or employees. And we, you know, when we took a step back, it really shouldn't have been that much of a surprise. Because when you think about it, everything I said about frontline managers is amplified multifold when you're a senior leader and you are shaping and steering a large ship, when you are making decisions that impact many people's lives and livelihoods, when you are also dealing with your direct reports, when you are also dealing with your own needs and anxieties and concerns, when you're also dealing with that of your family. So many, 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 many levels of accountability and many, many levels of strain. So a high level of demand, but also in this environment, the usual tools that senior leaders have were not exactly the same tools. So the level of control they had, you know, making decisions in the pre-pandemic world and making decisions when you had to consider, you know, changes in public health, when you had to consider concerns of your employees, uh, business model adjustment needs, the supply changing, so many things not within your typical control. And we know that when you have higher demand, you need a sense of control or you need support. But those th three things go together. If you have higher demand and you don't have uh, great control, if you have less control, your strain is significant and you need greater support. But again, think about how we respond to mental health in the workplace. Very often, we're not talking about the mental health of senior leaders. We're talking about the mental health of the population. That isn't right. That isn't fair. It's important to make sure that each and every individual, regardless of their, their level, gets supported. 
Well, and that's number. really interesting. Can, can I ask you a quick question on that then? Um, Absolutely. So, so you talk about control and how that as, as that sort of uncertainty grows, you need to be able to have more control. How do you get that? Because oftentimes what's happened in COVID is we've had increased responsibility and less control. So it's like amplified from both ends. Well, uh, you seek the control where you can get it by understanding what you can control, which might be different than what you were able to control before. So that's one thing. This is shift, a mental shift in terms of how you're looking at your role and your accountability. Uh, but the other thing is that even you might not get back as much control as you had hoped. You might need to have that support, which is the third leg of that triangle. And what we found in our, our results is that, you know, it, uh, senior leaders who had the support of their peers did better. It wasn't even so much the support of your one-up manager. It was the support of your peers. So being able to sort of rely on, work things through, prioritize with people who understood your own experience, that was one of the factors that made a significant difference. That's really interesting because I think we always look to our boss for help when, when we're stuck or you look up to go, well, what should I do? You've been here before. Tell me what I should do. Um, and the peer level is usually where you almost air grievances or, you know, if you had to deal with this, it's a bit weird. But it makes sense that you would need that just the reality that it's normal and everyone's going through it. How did you deal with that? Oh, OK, I'll try that. And it doesn't negate the, the support of the one up leader. It just it, our data just suggests, particularly in this group, that it's just not sufficient. You know, you know, we have a senior leader group who, you know, they, they, they're not managed by tasks, they're managed by accountabilities and that accountability isn't going to change. But how you deal with it and whether you're accepted or not uh, for the struggles that you have, that's your peers. And, and that, you know, that brings me to a, a couple of other points actually. You know, one of the things that is, is really important is that people feel comfortable in being themselves and reaching out for support. Uh, but we found that there was a much higher level of stigma amongst uh, the senior leaders than non-senior leaders in organizations. So it actually went up by the level that you are. So the, we still have a lot of workplace stigma in the workplace. It was a little bit greater for frontline managers and even greater for senior leaders. And we measured it in two areas. One was self-stigma and the other was fear of career reprisals and both were higher in senior leaders. So I think we have a lot of work to do. And you know, some of the impact of this, uh, this survey uh, has been having organizations have these open conversations, having well-being sessions specifically focused on senior leaders, uh, having reality checks and, 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 and peer, peer meetings so you can problem solve and prioritize from a work point of view. Essentially that very obvious focus on what's needed for that group because it's a group that's often their well-being is often somewhat taken for granted you know you have you know you seem to have everything together or else you wouldn't have been in, in, in a senior leadership role so the the empathy and perhaps even the organizational support for your well-being tends not to be as specific yeah. we've actually got a, a good question in in the chat coming through and people are starting to ask a few more Paula um, you spoke of the triangle support and control what was the third arm? Um, yeah, the, the demand, support, and control. So when you're under, um, you know, additional strain, 
you know, the, you, you can have, you really want those, those three aspects to be in balance. So the level of demand meets the level of control that you have and the level of support that you have is appropriate to the level of strength. Um, and whenever one of those, particularly the demand or control is off balance, you know, the demand increases, the control decreases, uh, then that really is a risk situation and more support is needed. It, it also sort of brings me to a point, um, you know, we all have gone through a difficult time during this pandemic. There's, there's no way, there's, there's disruption, there's uncertainty, some have had a harder time than others. The need to feel validated the need to feel appreciated, the need to feel recognized goes up when you are under strain. So this is important to know for our employees. It's also important for organizations to know about leaders because we found that feeling underappreciated for the extra strain that was, that's, that was a natural result of this time was one of the drivers of that 51% that we saw were thinking about exiting their role in one way or another. So 51% were thinking about either retiring or downshifting or moving to part-time or retiring, like resigning, retiring were, were two, the two big ones, but we also had downshifting and, 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 um, and part-time as I mentioned, but in total, it was 51%. The number one reason was the emotional strain and very close behind that was feeling underappreciated. Wow. That's huge. Do you, it is. Do you have any view of what the figure was before COVID? We, when we looked at the benchmark data that we had, pretty much half. So most of the risks increased, you know, uh, pretty much 100%. Wow. So this this is and 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 you you probably heard it. It was there's it, there's some news reports etc. About this great resignation. It's not just senior leaders, it's others as well. It's just you know the data that we're bringing forward says that senior leaders are not immune to it. As a matter of fact, senior leaders had more options for exit. We didn't find employees thinking about downshifting or, or retiring early. We thought we they thought about um, uh, resigning, uh, but there were more options available to senior leaders, which is a greater risk for businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the expressions I've typically heard for for managers is that you're in the middle of the bow tie. So you've got the pressure coming from the team, and you've got the pressure coming from senior leadership, and you're stuck in the middle, just you know, waiting to explode sometimes. Um, what you've described instead of, in terms of the demand and the support and the control, I think it's the, you know, at the middle, we forget the support and you yeah. kind of feel like you're alone in managing those strengths and you've just got to somehow make sure everybody's happy. But thinking about what you can do to optimise yourself in the middle of that it is kind of your key to not being a victim of it. Well, I can, I can tell you honestly that the response to this report has been absolutely overwhelming. Uh, so when we released it, there was some press coverage and some LinkedIn coverage, et cetera. And the number of outreaches that I got and my colleagues at Deloitte got, uh, people individually saying thank you 
at least I don't feel alone. I thought I was the only one. I'm glad that this is on the table right now. This is this is the best kept secret in the world and considered a dirty little secret that senior leaders have needs to. Like it, it, it really opened up a floodgate of I think things that are very positive. And uh, we're starting to do a bit of a follow-up with organizations who had been exposed to this um, information early, you know, essentially the participants of, of the study. And um, the information was shared with their senior leader groups. The information was largely shared with their CEOs. Um, but in 100% of the cases, they started to take action specifically to focus on the needs of their senior leaders, which is something that they hadn't done in a very intentional way with respect to mental health before. It was kind of just taken for granted as part of the, the overall strategy of the organization. And why do you think that is? Is that because senior leaders are expected to have, to look after themselves? Is that, you know? Well, actually, even even more distant than that, they're expected to look after themselves themselves, and they're expected to look after their staff and the rest of the organization. Because um, when when we even asked, you know, what what are your biggest priorities? It really wasn't themselves, actually. It was it was concern about uh, how their role in making the right decisions for their staff during this difficult time. And it wasn't only direct staff, it was the organization. So it was quite heartening, actually, to see that the mindset of these senior leaders was on the support that they needed to offer to the organization, which is quite right. But it also, there was the subtext of assumption that they had all the tools and the permission to take care of themselves. Some of the text that we saw, some of the comments uh, were that they felt that their role was to make sure that the business and the employees were well taken care of. Um, and they almost felt guilty in that self-care, even though they knew that it was intuitively and intellectually uh, the starting point of everything. Yeah. Actually, um, it's a really good point. That's something that I was once told because this is something I personally struggled with is the feeling of guilt taking that time, even just taking a full lunch break um, and going and doing something for yourself. I remember, and this is quite a specific example to me, but um, I went and got my nails done on a lunch break. And it was the worst time I could have possibly spent because I spent the whole time worried someone was going to come and look at me and go, oh, my goodness, we are working so hard and Lizzie's off getting her nails done. And yet I'd been working till midnight every night the last month. Um, and just to take that time, I felt so guilty. And the advice someone gave me, which I thought was so interesting, was to say, what is the story you're telling yourself? What is the narrative? Which is that someone will see me and go, oh, dear God. And I told my team that. And they were like, are you kidding? We would walk past and be like, oh, thank God. That means I don't have to feel guilty if I do that because, you know, we all work really hard. And that's great to see it because I know, now know I can do that too. Well, exactly. The, 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 how, how the senior leader is, how the leader is, really defines and predicts how the rest of the organization is. So, you know, when you think about it, what you were doing is modeling that, that kind of balanced life. You know, you can't just be focused on one thing and have your brain focused on one thing because you start to become ineffective and you start to become burned out and cynical. So having that kind of, you know, taking those moments for yourself, you're modeling the right thing. And people do look and they watch and they emulate senior leaders. The other side of that is that we find that people who are very high performing, you know, the way 
um, strain presents itself and even depression presents itself might not be what you see in the Hollywood movies and, and uh, read in books in terms of, you know, the lethargic and in bed. It might present it like that. But we often find that people, um, they use the skills that have led them to be successful and start to overuse them. So if you're detail-oriented, you become obsessively perfectionist. If you're hard-driving, you become much harder driving. Um, you know, we see this profile of, you know, this high-performance strain that often often creates issues, chain reaction, because again, to get to that level, you have you probably have a certain amount of intensity and then ramp that intensity up tenfold and you're probably not creating the healthiest environment for your people. Absolutely. And the way I've heard that explained sometimes is that strengths overplayed become your weaknesses. Um, so yeah. if you think that being the hardest worker is going to get you to the top, sometimes you can work yourself so hard that that's actually the very thing that stops you from getting there. So Mm-hmm. Paula, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to reflect on the work that you've done with us today. Um, for a few questions in, in the chat we've got here, um, the report is available. Um, we've got it linked there and we'll make sure everybody can get access to it. Not a problem at all. But thank you so much, Paula, today. That was really, really valuable. My pleasure. I'd li like to now introduce, we've got two speakers coming on board. Um, we've got We've got Kirsten Watson, a partner in Deloitte's human capital practice. Um, and we've also got Andrew Colvin, who's a partner in Deloitte's financial advisory team, former national coordinator of the National Bushfire Recovery Agency and former commissioner of the Australian Federal Police. Um, welcome to both of you. Thanks, Lizzie. Yeah, thanks, Lizzie. Good to be here. So I really want to um, use this opportunity to pick your brains on how you figured out how to manage this kind of thing, how you have managed to build wellness into your day, how you've built your resilience over time and the times you've had to avoid burnout. And I think a, probably a good place to start is, you know, tell me about a normal day and the things that you think about to make sure that you stay on top of your game. Maybe we'll start with Kirsten first. Thanks, Lizzie. A normal day, um means that whatever you planned is not going to go to plan <laughs> i think number one so you can have best intentions but also being ready to respond to to whatever comes your way is what i, I learned particularly over the last i'd say six or seven years of my career and it only exacerbates uh, with the more responsibility that you get so i think being able to accept that you've got plans but they're going to shift uh, is a really important thing and then being able to both be satisfied with what you're able to deliver whilst also being able to steer according to what your priorities and your values are is something that i find um, very important there's you know when we talk about being a leader in the volatile world, there's this tolerance of ambiguity. And I think being able to know that there's certain things that you don't know and being able to reach out and steer and pull things together for me has been an absolute key. Um, and how do you prioritise in that? Well, one of the... So we're not just workers, right? We're people and there's a lot going on and there's been a lot going on in our lives, especially uh, as Paula was just describing, us as individuals and our families, the nature of the work that we've had to do and the way that we do our work through the pandemic has really changed. Um, what I've learned, especially over the last 18 months, is it's very important to prioritise according to your values. And there's an analogy that 
uh, resonates with me personally. I've used it with a number of people about the number of balls that we all juggle every day. We're all juggling things at work and at home, but those balls, they're not all made out of the same material. Some of them are made out of plastic, and if you drop them, that's okay. You can pick them up another day, but some of the balls are going to be made out of glass, and they will shatter if you drop them, but no one else can tell you which of your priorities is made out of glass each day. One day it's going to be a project deliverable that you've got. Another day it's going to be your mental health or your child's mental health. And you, for me, what I've become very focused on is what matters to me. It's my life. It's my values. And I'm going to make the, the judgments that I need to make within that context according to my values. But also to give people permission that and empower them that they're the only ones often who can make those decisions in their lives as well. Leaders can't tell people which ones are their priorities, but we need to create an environment where people can trust. Uh, for me, that's been the most important thing, the values and the freedom to make those choices in a, in a basis of trust. Yeah, absolutely. And, and particularly being the Chief People Officer at Transport for New South Wales, I feel like setting that tone and setting that culture from the beginning for everybody is really important because I think oftentimes people look to you to set those values for you. Yes, they do. And to make rules that they can abide with, particularly in the public sector. I've been 18 years in the public sector. And uh, as we were already working very hard to create flexibility, uh, to create a, a, a workplace of flexibility, and people wanted to know what the rules were for flexibility. And that doesn't work. Mm. You don't have rules for flexibility. That's just a new set of rules. True flexibility is being able to make decisions that are right for you, for your team, for your customers and your clients in the context of what you're dealing with. And it has to be based on trust. And so the number of times when, uh, even as we we're going into COVID, where people will say, well, we like this way of working. Um, will we be able to keep it? How many days will be okay in the future? I can't answer that for you. You have to work it out. And so really creating an environment where you know that people are there to do the right thing. You're focused on equipping them with the tools to do the right thing. And then you have to create the environment and the guardrails for people to, to make those checks. But the guardrails aren't two days is okay, three days is okay, because no one else can make that decision outside of the context. Yeah, and it's a really interesting point linking back to what Paula was talking about, how there's almost the, the self, everyone has their own sort of metric of what they expect everybody else will tell them is the right answer and what they expect that, you know, this is what I'm expected to do, I'm expected to be seen rather than taking ownership of that and saying, well, this is what actually works for me and my values and I'm going to stick to this and I'll justify it because I've got clear evidence and I'm going to get the work done. Yeah, and I think the move into flexible and hybrid ways of working satisfied a lot of people because they weren't being told they had to go into the office. Then a lot of people didn't like lockdown because they didn't like having to work from home all of the time. And so it's that choice I've been describing as the element of choice uh, is what's really important to people. And in Paula's triangle, it's the control. It gives people something that they can control in a world that is very out of control. I can have a conversation about what, what the work needs to be done where it needs to be done and who I need to do it with and I can control the best outcome out of that it's not a question of whether the work will be done it's how it's best done and you can give people control over that um, with the right investments and support to make those decisions but you can't give them the rules uh, yeah absolutely and so Andrew what about you what would you say is the way that you approach your day and how do you look for ways to improve your well-being throughout yeah, um, thanks, Lizzie. And, and look, a lot of what um, Kirsten just said really resonates strongly with me. I love the juggling of the balls and, and the making the decisions. And 
And I felt that um, Paula's research, I mean, listening to Paula talk, she could have been talking directly to my experiences, quite frankly. Um, you know, there's no, particularly if I think about my senior policing career, not just as commissioner, but coming through those senior levels, there's no such thing as a typical day. And that's 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 the reality, I think, of leadership. I think there's a, there's a notion that as you go through the ranks and become more senior, you get more control over your day. If you don't, you actually get less control over your day because you become the domain of everybody. Uh, and especially when you get to those really senior levels, then you've got political considerations and ministers who don't care less what, you're, what you think you want to do that particular day. And in policing, of course, it's very volatile. So I, I, um, I'm not going to pretend that I dealt with this well. Um, I, I learned things along the way. I'm a list maker. I am a you know, huge list maker. I write lists everywhere on anything. There's no coherence to where I put them, but, I, but it helps me order myself about, righto, I started the day thinking I was going to do A, B, and C. I'm now doing something completely different, but I'm still going to come back and do A, B, and C at some point. So for me, I, you know, talking to what Kirsten was saying about the ambiguity that we all live in, I thrived in that. I enjoyed that. To my team around me, they probably heard me whinge and moan about it all too much about having to race off and do things that I wasn't planning. But that was, that was when I was at my best. That was when I felt that I was achieving the most, that I was it was my wheelhouse. That's what I was good at was ambiguity and chaos. And but at the same time, the other half of my brain was like, OK, Andrew, you've got to make a list. You've got to write down the things that you're not getting back to. So I, I would be a big list taker. And I learned that um, later in my career that I needed to take lists. And and it was the only way, frankly, sometimes I could get myself out of the office and I could get myself to sleep was to go, OK, I may not have got everything done, but I know what I need to do. So I've, I've got the bits done that I can control. The rest of it, I'm going to get back to. I'm going to get somebody else to do it, or I'll do my best to get it done tomorrow. So I was, that was important for me each and every day to understand that nothing was going to go the way that it was planned, but I had a system. The, the other thing I'd say too, and um, you know, how, does, how did I get through on, on individual days? I can't understate, overstate, sorry, how important exercise was for me. And again, I didn't realize this at the time. I'm no super fit human being, but the days that I would do something in the morning um, to exercise, be it a bike ride or go to the gym, I was so much better. I was so much better during the day. Uh, I can't describe why that is. Doctors will tell you it's got all sorts of you know, chemical things in your brain that that help you with that. I don't know. I just knew it worked for me. Um, and, whether, and I think it was also the camaraderie of doing that with somebody else. So it was my only periods of time. And I think about my senior career in policing, I was never turned off. And, and police talk about that all the time. You're hypervigilant. You're always turned on. The only time I wasn't turned on was when I would be exercising, partly because I like to mountain bike and I'm not very good at it. So I would be very focused on trying to stay upright. Um, so I wouldn't be thinking about too many other things. But on every other occasion, my your brain is a phylodex of things happening and it's just ticking around whichever one's at the front of, on any given moment but right behind it there's 10 other things and so the only way i could get through was to find ways just to switch off or at least feel i had that control getting back to that triangle that okay i've got control i understand what i need to do um so yeah no no as, as you become more senior your day is actually less in your control and and more you are owned by more people and more people want a piece of you and you, you've got to find ways to keep that control mm. I, I think 
the control is a really interesting one and I might circle back um, to how we, you know, how you've made room for yourself to be able to make those decisions. But I just want to touch on the exercise for a bit because I think it's it's really interesting. I've read some really interesting studies that show that when you're in a stressful situation and when you're in sort of a flight or fight response, it, it's the reactive part of your brain that kicks in. And if you let that carry on, you're not making really good long-term decisions. You're acting with a stress response that's heightened and based on the immediate need that you can see, it doesn't allow you to do the long-term planning. Um, and consistently, they've found that if you even just touch your forehead, you know, put the kettle on, do some star jumps, whatever works for you in an office setting that you feel comfortable with. Um, but the physical, the brain always wins unless you reinforce it with the physical. And sometimes even in a stressful meeting, if someone says something that's a little bit confronting or it wasn't what you expected or something hasn't been well received, buying some time to take a few deep breaths and re-establish yourself in the physical presence um, has been proven by science to get the right part of your brain into gear to allow you to make better long-term decisions. So the importance of physical activity to do that, it, like you, you can't say it enough. It, it's just how we make better decisions as leaders as well. The, the other thing I think that goes with that too is um, elite athletes. Think about how much time elite athletes spend focusing on recovery. You won't find someone going to the Olympics saying, I'm going to train every single day until I get there so that I am the most burnt out person at the start line. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, Lizzie, but the reality is we're all imperfect. <laughs> and sometimes you know that that's what you should be doing, but you're not really good at doing it. And I was a classic case of that. So um, for me, I hit the wall a few times and when you hit it, you hit it pretty hard. Um, and it's because of all the things that Paula was talking about and all the things that we know, you know, you even said it yourself. I think your line about focusing on your strengths or overplaying your strengths um, can become your weakness. You know, I, I was good at working in in ambiguity, in chaos. I saw one of the questions, how do you just how do you how do you survive when it's not chaos? Um, I was I was I always worked hard. You know, no one would ever say I didn't work hard. I always put everybody else in front of myself. Um, including the organization, I would be focused on what's the organization's need, what's the organization's well-being, um, what are my individual's well-beings before myself. And then eventually it just builds up and you hit a wall. And for me, that wall looked like, you know, quite frankly, an ambulance coming to my house one day because I just hit the wall. And when and when it was diagnosed, the doctor just said, you've got to stop. You have to you have to take a break. Um, and, and, you know, so those moments, you know, you're not proud of that. But I tell you what, you learn from it and you realise you've got to do things differently. That was, that was a real wake up moment for me as well when try is no longer enough. Mm. It's do or don't do and there's consequences to don't do. So, you, you know, this idea that I'm going to try and look after myself, is that's nothing. Uh, you actually have to prioritize eating well, sleeping well, look at how much you're drinking, look at what your stress triggers are. Um, it, it makes the world of a difference and just thinking about it is not going to actually change anything. So in terms of making that practical then, what's, what's some things that people can take away? Where do you start? What are some practical things that they can do today to intervene with those, those triggers? I saw um, there's be conscious of what your easy buttons are and what your reset strategies are. Uh, you know, our easy buttons, for me, it's chocolate. 
<laughs> you know, maybe after work it's a drink, you know, that, that kind of thing. They're very easy things to reach to. Um, but you know that that's not really restoring you. It's a release in a moment, um, but it's not really putting fuel back in your tank. Uh, so what are the what are the things to to break that trigger? I now make sure I have several glasses of mineral water before I have a drink of alcohol, and I probably don't really feel like the drink of alcohol after I've done that. Um, or going for a walk around the block. I don't exercise a lot, but I do do micro exercise. So just having that ability to have a physical release. And for the emotional triggers that you were talking about, Lizzie, in a, in a meeting, uh, I'm, I've become very attuned to my physiological reactions. And so when I feel like a flush of um, blood come through my face or a sinking feeling in my stomach or I get the sweaty palms or I'm shaking, you know, I'm, I, th I think what's going on with my body? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? What is the thought process that's driving that physiological reaction? Am I angry? Am I ashamed? Am I embarrassed? Am I offended? You know, and, and start to engage with what's going on and, and having a conversation with myself to, to work through how I respond. Because again, back to Paula's control and someone's question about, you know, when the world feels so out of control, we can always control how we respond. Mm. Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, uh, I learnt to listen to people around me, Lizzie, and again, it, it took me a long time, too long to learn that lesson, that I wasn't the best at knowing when I was um, on a downward trajectory. Uh, your partner, you know, it might be your spouse, best friend, partner, whatever, they know you better than you know yourself. Uh, and so for me, my wife, um, who I didn't listen to nearly enough until it was too late, you know, there's a common male um, story, uh, uh, she she knew she could see it, particularly towards the end of my term as commissioner. But the other thing I did that I think is important, and Kirsten and I have talked about this, you surround yourself with people that you enjoy. Um, you can't always, of course, um, but yeah, you don't always get to pick everybody in your team. But I surrounded myself with people who I could have a laugh with, who understood me, knew knew when the pressure points were on, knew when they could have a bit of a joke at my expense. Knew when I was having a bad day to, to put a chocolate on my desk because um, I love chocolate too. Just just those little things, and you know, you 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 might have just had a really bad meeting with the minister. You come back, you got a zillion things going through your head. You know, maybe career-defining stuff, and you get back. Your teams knows know that it hasn't gone well, and they've just done something that makes you laugh, makes you smile, um, says say the right thing to. That would just lift the weight of the world off. So. You know, it's having the right people around you, listening to them at the right time. And, you know, the other thing that Kirsten and I talked a little bit about is we're allowed to have fun. I used to say it to police recruits all the time. Every time I graduate recruits, I'd say, essentially, yes, this is a serious job and I expect you to take it seriously. And I expect you to, you know, to, to perform to your best every day. But I want you to have fun because if you're going to do this for 30 years or 40 years and you're not having fun, then you're not going to be in a good place. And that's the same for the public service, the same for wherever you work, you are allowed to have fun. You're allowed to have a laugh. Um, find a way to do that because it, we spend a third of our life doing this. Um, a third of it's asleep. So you're not leaving much time there to have fun in life if, if work is really all down and down. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And one tool actually um, that I, someone gave me recently, which I just thought was gold, was around um, thinking about your time um, as a bit of a menu 
And they basically said, you know, you might have an entree or an appetizer, and that could be five, 10 minutes. You might have a main meal, and that might be a holiday for two weeks with your partner or friends. Um, dessert might be, you know, just a weekend away or something like that. But break your time into chunks and come up with a list of things that you really like doing. So if you've got five minutes, it might just be listening to a really good song. Um, you know, if you've got 30 minutes and a meeting's cancelled, instead of just looking at your computer and going, oh, my God, I've got so much to do, go, all right, I've got 30 minutes. What's on my 30-minute menu? Okay, I can go for a walk. You know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it with purpose. So you have this list of really fun stuff that whenever you get some little time, you can actually choose to spend it having more fun and doing things that you know restore you and replenish you. Or even if it's having chocolate and you know it's a choice, like <laughs> make the most of it when you do. Yeah, 100%. Like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've always approached um, work choices that I'm going to choose my boss as well, which, you know, in practice doesn't always happen. But you've got the choice to leave as well. So sometimes I've gone into, uh, I, you know, when I go for an interview, I'm interviewing the person who's going to be my boss. And they can change, you know, you don't always get to have a say in who the new boss is. But if if that's if it doesn't align, if it's not giving you energy, go somewhere else. But also when you're choosing your team, think about their skill sets for today. Are they going to be their skills? Are they capable of having the skill sets fit for the future? And are they going to give you and the team energy back as well? Uh, because it's just too hard. The work is too hard, especially in the public sector. It's tough. And uh, dealing with difficult to work with people on top of all of that, it's it's too much. And what I'm hearing is from both of you is that it's flipping your thinking from someone's going to tell me what to do and someone's going to frame it for me to having way more control than perhaps you realise to make good decisions for yourself that set you up in terms of your whole team, your whole career. Yeah, and you have control even when you think you don't have control. Even when everything seems out of control, there are things that you can still control. So focus on those things. Could be as simple as the, the the five minute breaks that you take to go to the bathroom. Like I, I'm going to consciously go to the bathroom right now, and on the way back, I'm going to get a drink from the bubbler. Um, mm. You've got elements that you can control, and slowly you'll start to build out the things that you can control in your day. And and then that chaoticness of the day, which is a reality, becomes a little bit less chaotic. Yeah, because what you focus on gets bigger. So yeah, absolutely. I think and I think that that's quite a nice point to bring it around to the concept then of resilience, because a lot of this is about, you know, you get to that point, and you learn the lessons and you go, OK, that that's clearly the limit. And then oftentimes I think people forget and then they go back, you know, you go back to your working pattern, you sort of recover from that burnout and you go again and you find, oh, the limit's a bit further than it was before. I can just keep doing this. What advice would you have for people on the call about managing that cycle? Because it almost it validates the story that if I keep pushing the limit will be further again because I'll be a bit more resilient. I can keep going. Yeah, it's a rubber band, isn't it? You keep stretching it, it's going to break. Mm. So you, I guess it's it's that self-awareness um, to know that that's what you're doing and you can do it, you can sustain it for a little while maybe. Um, but again, if you're listening to people, uh, you know, Paula talked about peers. I, For me, in my senior career in policing, peers were so important to me. Um, partly because they had a sense of what I, what we were dealing with, what I was going through. Um, I found that I wasn't a good sharer. I'd share bits with lots of people. I'd never share everything with one person. 
even even my wife at times, you know, and I look back and I think, yep, could have done that a lot better. But yeah, they they would be a guide for me. They would say you put, you know, the rubber band's getting too thin, Andrew. You've got to take, you've got to step back a little bit. Um, you know, I, I let Chris have a, a go as well on that, but I learned a lot about resilience through the bushfire work um, and just seeing communities in a completely different scenario. And if you have an opportunity, I'll talk about that. Um, the athletes model is, I think, seductive because, you know, they do so well. The Olympic athlete, everyone would love to be an Olympic athlete. Uh, that's in comparison to a professional career. It's a very short period of time. So as Andrew said, you can't drive yourself like an Olymp Olympic athlete for the length of your professional career. We need to reframe what it takes to perform and what success looks like in, in the context of a lifetime, especially with uh, our lifetime, our healthy lifetime increasing. So how are we going to really make the most of that as, as whole people? One of the things that I've learned to do, especially again over the last 18 months, and especially at home actually, but also at work, is ask for help. And it's often in those moments that I've felt the most overwhelmed, where I've just literally sat with my head in my hands and thought, I don't know what to do. I can't do all of this. What do I do now? And I've I've now got on my phone literally a list in my um in my notes section called people who can help. Because in those moments of overwhelm, it, it's it, very easy to feel on your own, but we're never on our own. We're never on our own. People will always rise to being asked to help. And from a professional perspective, the more you ask people to help, the more they grow as well. So you lifting as a leader gives people space to lift into, and that's good for them as well. The other thing that I would say from a resilience perspective, often the, you know, the times that we build resilience are, are some of the worst experiences in our lives. Uh, and I want to call out the concept of shame. I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown's work. And sometimes the things that make us feel the worst we don't want to tell anyone we're holding on to it and it's a shame storm going on in there and it's not getting any better and when you actually verbalize what it is with a really trusted colleague friend partner uh it shining the light of day on it really helps it's a lot worse when you hold it inside oh i think that is great advice and and so important as leaders i think brene brown's got some great stuff on vulnerability and how to navigate the the emotional turmoil which is exactly what paula was saying about the emotional stress on leaders and finding valves for that I, i'm conscious of time but andrew i do think it would be worth if you've got a moment to give us some of your reflections on the bushfire crisis and how some of these concepts um came through in terms of the recovery effort before we move on we're going to do a quick mentee poll after that but i think it would be great to get a minute or two yeah, happy to Lizzie. And and look, probably the greatest piece of advice for everybody listening, if they haven't heard of Brene Brown and they haven't watched or read, watched her um, YouTube videos or read her books, get out there and do it because she's brilliant and it resonates with me so strongly what she said. The bushfire victim, the bushfire role was, yeah, it was an amazing privilege for me to get out and sit around kitchen tables with people who've been through the worst day of their life um, and try and work out what we can do. And, and I expected that um, mental health would be an issue that I would have to dig hard to get people to talk to, particularly because these were rural communities, hardened farmers, you know, your typical, you know, if there is anything as such as a stereotypical Australian, but what people think of as stereotypical. I've got to say, um, if it wasn't the first thing people raised with me, it was in the top three every wow. time. 
I was blown away by it. So there is a there is a consciousness in the Australian community right now of mental health, well-being, burnout, fatigue, stress that I don't think was there five and ten years ago. The question, of course, is how do we capitalise on that? Um, what I was seeing was, uh, and and I guess it, it's important about resilience as well. You know, the the fact that there'd been a bushfire wasn't the cause of the stress or the pressure. Yes probably maybe lost a home or whatever it might be. Clearly that's traumatic, but it was just the pressure of everything around them. So even my presence would be adding pressure to them because I would be asking, what can I do to help you? Sometimes people aren't ready for that question. Um, nobody travels that journey at the same pace. And it's the same in your workforce. Everybody's at a different place in their own mental well-being in their own journey. And us making judgments about what should be a rational decision or why can't you fill that form out? It's really simple. It, it is illogical because you're not putting yourself in their shoes. And I, I found that time and time again, it, it, it was the same in the AFP and it was the same in the bushfire role that we make assumptions about how people are because physically they look fine. They've met me at the table, they've made me a cup of tea, we're having a grand old chat, um, but they're not fine. And, and I think the the lesson I learned is you've got to scratch past that surface to understand how people really are traveling. And and often it's not about diagnosing or telling them what they need to do next. It's simply understanding what they're going through. So I quickly pivoted my, my work with the communities to stop trying to say, well, I can get you a free counseling session with your local GP or I can do this. Or if you fill this form out, we can get you some money and just let them tell their story because the storytelling was the most powerful thing. And it, I saw it in the AFP as well. Um, you know, we went through our challenges with culture and behavior. We went through some some terrible challenges with mental health and, and, and suicide. Um, and people didn't always need the answer to be given to them. They just needed to be listened to. They just needed someone to understand what they've been through. Uh, and that did more to build their resilience than anything I could do in terms of yeah, clearly rebuilding a home and things like that was going to be good for them. But in the moment, um, listening was so important and storytelling was so powerful. Uh, so it was, yeah, I mean, there's so much I learned in that 15 months or so that uh, I'll take with me forever, but um, was a real privilege. Uh, that's, that's amazing. Look, so Andrew and Kirsten, thank you so much for taking the time to um, provide your own personal reflections. The biggest thing I think I've taken away is someone who um, is looking at the leaders in all organisations is that you realise that they're humans and most people on this call have probably gone through that realisation of, oh, they're just people too and you you know, you know don't need to shield the challenge that everybody goes through because by talking about it that you get the support that you need. So thank you very much. Um, we're going to do a quick mentee poll for everybody here today. I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to power through it quite quickly. Um, but we've got some slides that we're going to put up and we're going to have two key questions um, that we'd like to reflect. So firstly, scan your QR code on the screen. This will take you to the link. Alternatively, you can type in menti.com and enter the code. You don't have to log in or anything. It's completely anonymous. And we've got two key questions that we're going to ask. Um, so the first question is, um, um, Crowdsourcing from your peers, based on your personal experience, what practical advice would you share with other future leaders to help them protect their well-being and avoid burnout? So I think we've had some great examples from today 
um, talking with your peers is probably something that is new and I hope that people take that away from um, the people that they've met through the IPA journey. Um, I myself had been through the program earlier this year and the connection that you get, it makes networking not something that's this transactional business relationship, but actually a support network to help you be a better person and a better leader in the community. So hopefully people can start, there we go. So we've got ask for help, take me time, set boundaries, that's a tricky one something that you need to do every day. Leave loudly, I really like that one. Lead by example, sleep on it, sleep on it. Know that it's okay for everything not to be done. Routine, not alone, meditate, self-care. I think this is really good and you can see that there's an, a clear theme here about prioritizing yourself. It, it's not about being a martyr leader. It's about saying by putting myself first, I'm actually helping everybody. What else do we have? Surround yourself with good, good people. I think that's really important. Learn how to say no. Excellent. Take the time out. Talk to others. Accept that you can't do everything. This is really excellent. Um, what we're going to do is take all of these away and group them up into some of the key insights that we've heard also from Andrew and Kirsten today. Um, and we'll circulate some of these out so that you've got a bit of a toolkit to take away. It's not just a conversation that you listen in on. You've actually got a few things that you can walk away with. <laughs> Buy a good pair of earbuds and <laughs> do meetings while you go for a walk. That's great. I thought you were going to be like so that people don't talk to you so you can focus, but that's, that's also fair. Go for a walk on meetings. Yoga, excellent. All right, and the final question is, what's one thing the APS could do to better support future leaders to avoid burnout? I'm quite interested to see this one because I actually think that a lot of what we've learned today is the concept that you control more than you think you can control. So you are actually able to define your own path and you're expected to in a lot of circumstances, even though there's this narrative telling you that someone else will tell you what the answer is. Let's see what we've got here. So as it's refreshing, set the tone from the top. Allow that control to be exercised at lower levels. That's a really good one. Knowing how to let go so that your team is empowered as well. Culture of openness is really good. Be realistic. <laughs> Champagne results on a beer budget. I like that. Set reasonable spans of control. Yeah. Listen to the people in your life. Reduce pressure coming down. So this is really interesting. So th this might be... Um, even though the question is, what is one thing the APS could do to better support future leaders to avoid burnout? A lot of these things you can do yourselves, which I think is really awesome. Um, if I can summarize um, four key takeaways from what we got today is, you know, think about your day, think about the habits that you can create that can set you up for success and know that change starts with yourself. Listen to your peers and your family and your friends who know you better than you know yourself. And don't forget to have fun. Look for ways to have fun every day. That's it. Thank you very much. I think I'll pass over to Holly. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you very much to Deloitte, of course, Lizzie, Paula, Andrew and Kirsten for that wonderful session. It was so authentic. It very clearly resonated with everybody today.